they have the most return potential out of all the assets we've listed, but they are also the riskiest asset. Of course, with proper diversification and a long-term view, you can definitely make all of these assets work in your advantage. In this podcast, we take you with us on a journey about economics and investing. By being equipped with different perspectives, we strive to make better and more informed financial decisions. Welcome to Capital Convos. And we are back with our $100 journey. Unfortunately, that $100 has not left Greg's pocket yet for investment. Why not, Greg? Hey, we've gotten to the point where we've opened up the account. We are ready. We're ready, okay, to put that $100 to work. But for now, it's still in the pocket. First, what you need to do when considering an asset or a combination of assets is what asset classes are there? What can you consider? Or basically the question is, what do you invest in? Very simple. Today, we're going to break down the traditional assets and the alternative assets, just like we did in the previous episode with traditional brokerage accounts and alternative brokerage accounts, just to get you an overview of what you can do with your money. To kick it off, let's start with the, the ones we've had experience in, in the traditional space. Do you want to kick this one up? Yeah. So obviously the number one asset people invest in are stocks, stock ETFs, index funds, individual stock, doesn't matter, but they're either an individual stock in a company or a bundle of stocks. Okay. So I myself hold some ETFs. You hold some ETFs. So let's just break it down. What exactly is an ETF? Yeah. So an ETF stands for exchange traded fund. And basically an ETF is a fund in itself. That is a collection of different individual stock that tracks them as a collective. So one of the most popular ETFs, or there are several ETFs that, for example, track an index. Uh, what is an index you may ask? An index is a broad collection of stocks that they use as a benchmark to gauge the health of the market. So you have several different benchmarks. The, the basic one that everyone is familiar with is the Dow Jones index. Another one is the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is the top 500 US-based companies. And then we have the NASDAQ 100. That is the top 100 tech-based financial companies in the U.S. So you have indexes all across the board yeah. and you have ETFs that try to get you access to those indexes. Yes, and the ETF is basically tries to replicate that performance. It's a collection of usually lower uh, cost stocks because an ETF is also a stock, basically. It sells and interacts the same way as you would with the stock. So let's just say, for example, an ETF consists of a number of different companies. So if you buy one share of that ETF, that one share is a fraction of, of all companies that are in the collection of that ETF. Yes. So let's just say we have our $100 bill. We want to buy one share of X ETF, doesn't matter. That 100 bills get $100 get separated into different types of assets depending on what the ETF holds. So why would somebody 
want to go the ETF route instead of just buying the individual stock, maybe, you know, the number one stock of the most valued company. I don't know what it is now, but say Apple or Tesla. Well, that that's pretty simple because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. It's a diversification trick and it's also very easy and very low cost. Usually the ETFs are run by some type of fund manager and then they try to get you that optimal asset allocation. So you you think you're just holding stock in a different company, but that variation, that allocation within the ETF gets controlled by a fund manager and they decide what the, what the optimal allocation is. Yeah, so basically you outsource this allocation and it's a way to dummy-proof your diversification. And when you're just getting started, dummy-proof is the way to go, right? Just make it as simple as possible. Then you, as you gradually get your feet more wet, you can do things more on your own, perhaps. I'm definitely a huge fan of ETFs and we can go into the types of ETFs that we've personally invested in near the end of this episode. But aside from ETFs and the individual stock, we've mentioned traditional investment methods. What other asset classes in the traditional umbrella are there? If you go in history and you find that the classic investment allocation, that would be the classic 60-40 portfolio. The 60-40 portfolio is 60% stocks and 40% bonds, right? And 60% stocks, that's pretty self-explanatory. Bonds in of itself are a completely different category. It's a whole different episode to cover. But the, the, typic, the conventional knowledge is stocks are a very aggressive type of investment and bonds are a relatively safe type of Could investment. Could you quickly describe what bonds are? I know it's uh, episodes in its own, but just the, you know, the one sentence, two sentence explanation of what a bond is. All right, so a bond is basically what we would call in Suriname is an obligatie, which is instead of buying direct shares in a company, you buy the debt of a company. So let's just say a company issues debt at a 4% interest rate, you buy that debt and then you get the 4% interest rate. But that asset in and of itself is less volatile than the stock market, but it is considered a way of balancing out the stocks. If you'd had to simplify it, it's a safer stock approach, but the technicalities are more intricate than that. It is not that you buy a share or a, you know, say in a company, it's kind of the opposite that the issue debt and very common in the US, especially our government bonds, right? Quickly, the difference between a government bond and a company bond. You mentioned before your example was with companies, but what would be the biggest or one key difference? Obviously, one is from the government, but why would you choose a government bond over a company bond or vice versa? Government bond has a very low risk of defaulting. The way that it works in the typical portfolio sense is that this you want your portfolio diversified. So when times are good, your portfolio does well. And when times are bad, the damage to your portfolio is minimal. And with government bonds, the risk of you losing the investment is very low versus in a corporate bond. 
when things go bad, the bond itself loses a lot of value. But when there's a recession or times are bad in the markets, the bonds actually go up in value. You can compare a government bond as a safe asset that does well in times when the markets are doing badly. And a corporate bond is very similar to a stock in terms of risk portfolio, in, risk of, in terms of risk measures. So the conventional way of viewing things are when the economy is doing well, your stock portfolio does well. But when the economy is doing bad, your bond portfolio does well. So it's just a way of diversifying your portfolio, getting some added security for in times when there's a crisis. So we covered quickly stocks and bonds, and you've mentioned this 60-40 allocation, but then where does real estate come into play? It depends on what your goals are. Real estate is just a different asset class you can invest in. And just like we mentioned, there are, just as there are bond ETFs, there are stock ETFs, there are also real estate ETFs. So you don't need to actually put up the $1 million, $2 million just to buy a house. And then you list it via a notary and stuff. You can just buy a real estate-based ETF and get that, those diversification benefits. But the real estate in of itself, the way that works is just another diversifier. Every asset class does well in a certain type of market circumstances. And real estate itself does also does well in a certain type of market circumstance. Getting into different type of market circumstances is a whole different episode in of itself. Yeah. So I, I guess for me, I would consider the traditional modes of investment that we just mentioned. Stocks bonds and real estates. Those are the very common and considered traditional ways of investing. And yeah, I think for locals here, real estate is usually the go-to method because that is the most accessible and because you don't have to necessarily interface with a broker. You can just buy land and sell it. But that is very the, the rural. Yeah. The, the, how do you call that? Oh yeah, there's very very low liquidity. You if you buy a house, there's very low opportunity to sell it at the time you want. Perhaps you have to take a haircut in case you're in need of funds. And those are typically you hold those you hold that property for years and years and years. Yeah, and that you require a lot of patience, and there are certain strategies to go with that. Unfortunately, neither Greg nor I have much experience in real estate, so. Going forward, we do want to recognize that it is there and there is money to be made in real estate, but we personally have not dived into that road as of yet. So we are going to look at some alternative methods of investment now, having mentioned the three traditional methods. So what are for you alternative methods of investment? Well, let's take it from least risky to most risky. The least risky alternative investment is what they would consider precious metals. Those are copper, silver, gold. And those usually, as we mentioned, they perform well during a certain type of market circumstance. But people usually don't buy these assets because these assets don't generate anything. They're mostly a safety fund. So when you have a stock, a stock issues dividend. It produces cash flow. If you have a bond, it produces cash flow as well. Real estate, you get rent from it. And precious metals, 
if you buy gold, you're not getting anything from that gold. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Right. So most people, they have a max allocation of, I would say 5% to gold. So uh, that's very, very low. So I want to quickly challenge that a second. So you mentioned, you know, the traditional, you get dividends, there is cash flow there. If you follow the markets uh, from the past few years, gold and silver have skyrocketed in their price per ounce or per, you know, the denominator they're listed in. So what would you call that? A capital gain, property appreciation. Why is the debt not considered cash flow? There are two ways of making money. When the stock, you get money when the stock issues dividend. And you also gain when the stock price goes up in value. Same with the bonds, same with the real estate if you're renting. But with the, with the precious metals, all you're really banking on is the appreciation of the price asset, right? So you're, you're basically missing out on money you could have made if you've bought stock and let the company do work for you. So yes, gold and silver have really shot up in value in the last couple of months, but don't that it goes both ways from 2011 till 2018, 2019, gold lost almost 40% of its value. So it, it went nowhere for almost 10 years. All right. So just to put it into perspective, you might want to, I might suggest people owning some gold, not a lot, but please consider those assets do not generate any cash flows. They're just there for safety and balance. Gotcha. That makes sense. So what's next on the least risky, what's next on the least risky scale of alternative investment? All right. So the next one is commodities. All right. So being from Suriname, commodities are a very hot topic because of the, the recent oil discoveries, but there are more commodities. There's a distinction between soft and hard commodities. You have the hard commodities, which are what they would consider the, uh, livestock, agriculture, and then you have the soft commodities, which are energy, oil, um, natural gas, stuff like that. Those are pretty risky because prices go up and down and they don't really trend as much as other assets do. So, but they are a way of diversifying your portfolio. And if you open up a brokerage account, you definitely have access to a lot of these commodities. Me, myself, I believe you as well. We're not really into commodities investing, but they're there in case you want to do your own due diligence. Yeah, especially for the current state, oil is probably the, the most interesting commodity at this point, 2021, July. Oil prices have for year to date, they've more than doubled. So if you bought oil, at the start of the year, you would have doubled your investment. So perhaps it's something you can consider. Yeah. Just do your own due diligence. Exactly. Because I, I consider oil, price of oil to be an anomaly in 2020, 2021, the cause of the, you know, the situation the world is in right now. So don't, I won't bank on it all in necessarily. So that is why diversification is important. And you will hear this a lot. We will mention diversification. But moving on from commodities, what's next on your list? The next one, obviously, are cryptocurrencies. 
they have the most return potential out of all the assets we've listed, but they are also the riskiest asset. Of course, with proper diversification and a long-term view, you can definitely make all of these assets work in your advantage. The typical asset allocation is 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And sometimes they, they tweak those numbers a little bit to put a little real estate, to put a little precious metals in there as well. But our personal allocation, how would you describe that, Diego? How are you allocated? So I have zero bonds. So if you, in a traditional sense, I went through the, you know, you used to go through the checklist, but that investor you are through the brokerage account, et cetera. And you can do this kind of test and questions. And I, I'd be categorized in the fairly C. If you have the spectrum left being completely safe and right being completely aggressive, I'd say it's C. It's in the middle, but a bit on the aggressive side. Mm -hmm. So. In the, considering the traditional allocation, mine would be 100% stocks. But of course, I also have alternatives. So if I had to divide that into the allocation, which I have not actually combined, because how I do it now is I keep them separate. I keep my traditional assets and my alternative assets separate from each other. Ideally you want to combine it, but because of so much volatility in the alternative markets, I want to keep a better overview by keeping them separate to not have a diluted view of what actual performance is and whatnot. Mm, that yeah. I kept them separate for now. Yeah. Comparing apples with apples. Yeah. So in the, in the traditional space, I am in 100% uh, stocks, but these stocks are also diversified. We can go into that diversification as well, if you want. Yeah, let, let's go into that. So you have certain stocks, you have them through ETFs. And then I know that in these, in this overall stock market, you have different sectors and you can diversify into different sectors based on what you might consider a preferential deal, what's going to happen in the future. So how do you go about what type of stocks you want to get into, what type of ETFs you want to get exposure to. So if you go into the diversification within the stocks, we've already mentioned we are huge fans of ETFs. So my stock picks are mostly, if not all ETFs. And I diversified into mainly four types of ETFs at this point. And the biggest, actually all of these ETFs are Vanguard ETFs. I chose Vanguard as one of the funds, uh, managers. They have one of the lowest management fees and they have a good track record. So I opted to go with Vanguard. So I chose all ETFs based on Vanguard and my split between these ETFs is around 40, 45 to 50% is in VUU and that's the Vanguard index that tracks the S&P 500. So, and the S&P 500, as you mentioned, is tracks the top 500 companies in the U.S. Yeah. So that's my U.S. allocation around 40 to 45 to 50% in the next one is VXUS. It is another index by Vanguard, but this is the total international stock market. So this includes U.S. markets, China markets, European markets, etc. So these move 
less than the S&P 500 index, but I use this more as an offset, like, you know, the, how you would want. So that, this is my diversification within a traditional sense. And then a smaller percentage, that's around 20 to 25%. A smaller percentage is then VEA. This is index for developed markets. So it considers some European countries. So these exclude US, the US completely. Uh -huh. So maybe Singapore, China, they, they kind of have established track record of development. So companies you'd consider here are, I'd say Alibaba, but I'm not quite sure on that one yet, but these, you know, rising companies. And then VWO is the lat next one is also around 10%. These are emerging markets. These are economies that kind of are on the rise. If you'd look at Singapore, for example, if you're into Asian markets, I'd say five to 10 years ago, Singapore would be considered emerging, but the region as a whole could be seen as emerging. I'd say Singapore's already in a developed stage, kind of personal opinion. Yeah. And then uh, the last 10% would be around some individual stocks, maybe some real estate stocks, just to diversify and experiment with a bit. But as you can see, at least 60, 70% is into the big international markets and of that chunk, mostly in the U.S. Yeah. So this is just to exemplify how we go about our allocation and just how broad-based these ETFs are. So there's probably an ETF for anything you can consider. If you want European bank stocks in one ETF, you can buy that. So just to bring this into perspective, there are actually more ETFs than individual stocks. Really? Yeah. Whoa. I don't wow. know quite the exact number, but I did uh, this uh, when I was doing my research on which ETFs to do. The ETF market totals actually more than the individuals. Wow. That is ridiculous. So just to, if you're, if there's something you want exposure to as an investment, you can probably find it in the form of an ETF. So me, myself, my portfolio, because I am very aggressive, I would say I have about 80 or 90% of my assets in crypto-based assets. I have a bundle of crypto cryptocurrencies that I just hold for the long term. I don't really care about the short-term volatility or the short-term returns. It's just for the long run. And then the rest of my assets I keep in my trading portfolio that we mentioned in last episode at IC Markets. I use that to day trade the currency markets. All right. So that's just how my portfolio is set up. I have a very high risk tolerance. And just to get into that, when you decide for yourself what allocation you should consider, is your risk tolerance. You can perhaps say that you want, uh, let's just say you want 100% return on your investment every year, but you're not able to stomach all the volatility all the time. You're going to lose 10%, 20%, 30%, 60%. These things happen. Yeah, I want to exemplify that actually, because uh, you mentioned you're very aggressive in very alternative crypto, like 80, 90% of your portfolio is there, right? And I said, I kept them separate. I described my traditional investment split from the traditional assets. And I didn't mention the alternative yet. So as you mentioned, risk tolerance there, this kind of prompted uh, an example in my head because before the bull market, current crypto bull market we're in, say 2020, 2019, 
basically the past three years, my split for traditional and alternative, so stocks and crypto was around 50-50. But with the recent surge of the crypto prices, actually around 80% of my portfolio is in crypto now. So that's, that's where you can see like how the scale has shifted so rapidly within a few months just because of how volatile the crypto market is. Yeah. And that's why I've kind of keep them separate to keep a fresh perspective. Okay. This, this type of, uh, asset class and this type of investment is moving slowly, but it's still rising. And the other one is kind of more volatile, even though it's spiked a lot, it doesn't give me the illusion like, oh, you've made so much money. That's the main reason why I keep it separate. Yeah. That, that's a very good way of looking at it. Okay. So that's just a way of exemplifying how volatility comes into the picture. So with higher risk comes higher reward. And if you want the higher reward, but you're not prepared to take the risk, then that asset just isn't for you, right? For everything, you need to find what works for you. And every single one of these investments have their own risk and reward profile. Yeah. So to sum it up, but to close this off, basically experiment, see, and look into yourself, like what comfortable to you and in the end it comes down to diversification but start with either what works for you so if you want to go the crypto route alternative route great start there if you want to go the traditional route stocks bonds start there i won't recommend mixing everything up at once when you get started understand one first and then for example you started with crypto once you get the hang of it you see the growth slowly migrate a part of that portfolio into the other asset classes to just to diversify, protect your, your portfolio, basically. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because you're not going to understand all these markets at once. And if you're going to wait a year until you understand all these markets before you start investing that $100 bills, it's going to cost you a return. So just start with one market and then just slowly expand your base of knowledge and see where you might eventually land. Yeah. In business, that would be called the opportunity cost basic because you have a taken action. Exactly. So to sum it up, we have the traditional asset classes such as stocks, bonds, real estate to look at alternative classes such as commodities, which include gold, oil, and silver, copper. And of course you have alternatives like crypto as well. The crypto market in itself is very I'd say it's growing and this can be split into different types of cryptos as well. So we have the currency utility. So that's even a whole nother episode in itself. But just to close this off, there are even more alternatives and we won't get into these, but I just want to mention them just to give people an idea to think about. But things like art, cars, Rolex watches. These are all types of alternative investment that if you find the right niche, people will pay a fortune for these. Yeah. I, I've heard Pokemon cards have skyrocketed in value. Pokemon cards, yeah. like those things we, we played with at $250,000 on auction for Pokemon cards. Wow. Wow. So that just goes to show never throw away your toys. Yeah. So that is some other alternatives, but that, then again, those are like really risky and you really need to be in that industry, that market, something you really need to understand because if that goes to zero, 
you lose it all too. That is only, you know, use a small portion of your portfolio to play with. And it should be something you really enjoy, you really like. Otherwise, if you just try to make money off of it, chances are most of the time you're going to lose it. Yeah, true. Always know what you're doing, kids. All right. Thanks, Diego. Have a great day. The information in this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional financial advice. All content, including text, graphics, and images contained in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not replace a consultation with your financial or tax professional.